So, uh, we are in a series on Sunday mornings entitled Golden Threads. We have appropriate decor and uh, appropriately themed PowerPoint as well. Um, Most of you will know that back in the spring, we were doing a a series called The God's Big Picture, which looked at the story of the Bible all the way through from beginning to end. And what we're now doing is picking up on some of the themes that go right through that story like golden threads through a tapestry. And in looking at them, there's a lot of encouragement to be found and a lot of life. So that's what we're doing. And this morning's thread, this morning's golden thread is hospitality. Uh, I'm going to have to talk about food quite a bit. And we're in the run-up to lunchtime. So I hope that's going to be all right. Uh, But we're looking at hospitality this morning. As we get there, I just want to remind you, helps if I turn it on, of uh, this summary of the story of the whole Bible. It's the, the, how far up the page the red line is, a sort of general sense of how well things were going. Things started well as God created the world to be good and people to be very good. Then people sinned. Adam and Eve turned away from God and things fell to rock bottom. Then God began to work through Abraham and through Moses and the people of Israel and something was built up again in the people of Israel, but it went wrong again. They continued to sin, as Adam and Eve had done, and they went into exile. Um, But then Christ came, and people thought, well, when Christ comes, just everything will be made right. But the story of the Bible is that actually, even after Jesus came, darkness continued. And we live now in between two kinds of realities, the darkness that's in this world and the life of Christ. And you can see that line continuing to head up, which is simply reminding us that with Christ, things keep getting better. The scripture says, the New Testament says that we are being transformed from glory to glory. So even whilst there remains sickness and darkness and trouble in this world, things are getting better. That's the age in which we live. And at the end of time, when the whole of history is wrapped up and brought to an end, Christ will come. Uh, Scripture speaks of a trumpet blast and a sudden thing and the dead will be raised. And everything that we've understood will be just overtaken by something even more glorious than we could ever have got our heads around as Christ comes again and his kingdom comes in its fullness. There's the story of the Bible. Now, uh, before we get into uh, the particular thread, I do uh, thank you, Melissa, for wherever you've gone. Thank you for reminding us of what Martin spoke about last week because I wanted to make sure that everyone got hold of that. I get to use the laser this morning, which I don't very often get to do. I've got to be very careful. You see that bit there? See, we're, we're living in that bit there, aren't we? Well, that, that bit there, to be honest, that's the church age there, where things are getting better. And last week, Martin spoke to us from another part of the story where things were getting better, which was back here somewhere, back here somewhere. Another earlier part of the story where, by God's grace, things were getting better for God's people. And he took us to Deuteronomy chapter 11 to show us that these, this improvement, this increase in God's grace amongst us doesn't just happen in a kind of drip feed kind of a way, but there are step changes that take place. 
And he spoke about, he reminded us of how all the electronic devices that we have receive upgrades, and there's a step into something better, and how it describes in Deuteronomy chapter 11 an upgrade for God's people. And I do want to read these verses, Deuteronomy chapter 11, verses 8 to 15. It says, observe the commands that God is giving you today so that you may have the strength to go in and take over the land that you're crossing the river Jordan to possess and so that you may live long in that land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give to them and to your descendants. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. Now the land that you are entering to take over is not like the land of Egypt where you've just been from where you've come where you planted your seed and irrigated it by foot as in a vegetable garden. And Martin reminded us or told us that they, you know, the, the floodwaters would come with an island. There'd be waters in the land, but effort would need to be put in to get that water from the river to the vegetable gardens. It was a place of labor. Verse 11, the land you are crossing the Jordan to take possession of is different. It's a land of mountains and valleys that drinks rain from heaven. It's a land the Lord your God cares for. The eyes of the Lord your God are continually on it from the beginning of the year to its end. And verse 14, I will send you rain. I will send rain on your land in its season, both autumn and spring rains, so that you may gather in your grain, new wine and oil. I will provide grass in the fields for your cattle and you will eat and be satisfied. Speaking of an upgrade from one pattern of life, now they, they hadn't done anything wrong in working hard to get the Nile's floodwaters into their gardens, but there was a new season in which there was going to be new favor from God beyond what they'd seen before, and all they needed to do was cross the River Jordan and step into this promised land, this great new grace that came from God. And I want to encourage you, if you weren't here last week, please, please go online and listen to Martin Dunkley's uh, sermon last week where he spoke about that far better than I will this morning or have just done this morning and really served to stoke faith. I don't know whether you felt that. Who was here last week? Like most people, yeah. And I felt like he took us from a place of hope, like I hope some good things happen, to a place of increased faith. It's like, I, I believe God's going to do us good. I believe I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. That's a precious thing. And I want to encourage us to take hold of that with both hands and to pray, uh, as I've been praying this last week, in all kinds of ways for an upgrade. I want an upgrade. So this morning, as we look at this golden thread of hospitality, um, I've, got a, I've got a one, two, three message this morning. I want to share with you one power that may not be as obvious to everyone as it could be from the scriptures. One power, actually not just one thread, but two threads and three upgrades. One power, two threads, and three upgrades. And if that sounds like it's going to take forever, I promise you it won't. Um, But I am going to go through the Bible story quite quickly along these different threads. And you might find it helpful to have a pen and paper to note down things if you're the kind of person that wants to know what was that reference, where is that in the scriptures. I'd like to go and look it up because I'm going to be moving uh, at some pace. So here we go. Here's the power. Oh, that's the upgrade bit. Uh, One power. 
this power is to do with food. Yay. Um, You know, it's sometimes said that Brits eat to live. You know, we eat just for the nutrients. Uh, Whereas the French, of course, live to eat. Uh, The quality of it matters tremendously. The Brits eat to live. Um, We'll eat whatever, really, as long as it's got some sugar in it. Uh, But the French live to eat, and they're very critical (laughs) about what gets eaten. I want to say that that in Bible times, they didn't have either of those cultures operating, but rather they ate for friendship. It's something we see again and again in the Bible, that meals were something done together, and meals were a place in which to know other people and to be known. Meals were a place to forge friendships and even covenant bonds. Or to put it simply, food makes friends. Yeah. It's not just about our physical bodies, but there is something social that happens when we eat. And there's an example that came to mind, even from our own recent church history. Some of you will know that we're part of Oxfordshire Community Churches. And back in the 1970s, there were just two churches, and they didn't have that name. They were called uh, Cote Baptist Church in West Oxfordshire, and also the Church at Merrifield House, uh, which was in Whitney. And I wasn't actually around at that time, but I've heard the stories, and I think I've got a fairly clear understanding of what happened. There was a Baptist church which was solid in many ways, uh, not really a moving sort of a place, but a solid church, good teaching. Uh, they knew what they were doing and why they were doing it and carried on doing it. And there was this church that seems, if you look at the pictures, they certainly dressed like a bunch of hippies. Whether they all were, I, they, yeah, they're those that, you know, that's tr- true fact. And they bought a house together and they lived in community. And their church was a gathering that took place in their, com- their commune building at the place called Merrifield House. And there was lots of life. And what began to happen was that members of Cote Baptist Church heard about this church at Merrifield House and started going to their meetings and coming back and saying that what they've got is really good and we ought to have some of it. And that gave rise, as you could imagine, not just to excitement, but to tension. And there will be many, many stories in church history that where the next chapter would have been uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Well, not they were already divided. The, um, like acrimony, that's what I'm. They where people just growing dislike. That's what I'm trying to say. Growing dislike of each other in that kind of scenario. But what intervened was a Chinese restaurant. And the leaders of the two churches went out for a Chinese meal together, which turned out not to be the last meal they had together, but they ate together and food made friends. They came to see the different grace of God operating in their lives and in their communities, and by the grace of God were able to see that they would be stronger together than if they remained apart. And out of that, 
A whole number of other churches, 15 churches now, have been planted to make up a growing group of churches that we're part of. So in a very real sense, we only exist as a local church because of a Chinese meal. Food makes friends. And that's not just some superficial thing. It's actually written into God's plans for how things should work. So that's the one power, an underestimated power, the power of food to make friends. So here's the thread. The first thread is this, that God feeds us. God feeds us, and he does it because he desires our friendship. He doesn't only desire our physical health. He feeds us desiring our friendship. So right back at the beginning of the story, we have the Garden of Eden. And it says in chapter 2 that the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he'd formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, Trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. God plants a whole orchard of food for the man that he's made. God feeds Adam. It's not that Adam has to, at this point in the story, he's not having to work. He's not having to feed himself. God makes provision literally to feed Adam. And this garden is not just a place for food to grow. It's a place of fellowship. We read in the next chapter how God came walking in that garden. God came walking in that orchard looking for Adam and by then Eve as well. Saying, I'm I'm here and we can have some time together. It's a wonderful picture. God provides food desiring our friendship. And then after Adam and Eve had sinned, after they'd disobeyed God and fallen, uh, God begins again with Abraham. And in Genesis chapter 12, he comes to Abraham and he promises him some amazing things. He promises him, I will give you this land, the land that we've read about from Deuteronomy 11 this morning, where it says in Deuteronomy 11, I promised this to your forefathers, the original promise it's here in Genesis 12 as God starts again and he says to Abraham, I will give you this land. You're not in Eden. That was forfeit because of the disobedience that took place. But I'm taking hold of you and I'm going to give you a land. This is the land that flows with milk and honey. This is the land where the rain comes down and there's fertile pasture and there's olive oil and there's grapes and all these wonderful things. He also says to him, I also promise you that your descendants will be numerous like the stars. And over the next few chapters, we start to see the beginnings of these promises being fulfilled. And that carries on through the next few books of the Bible. The first part of those promises to be realized was the increase in numbers. Abraham's descendants went into Egypt and there they increased in numbers, went from just a couple of people with Sarah uh, Sarah's, Sarah Abraham's wife and Abraham go into Egypt and come back out. There's millions 
of people that come back out of Egypt. They've increased in number as God promised. And then as they come out of Egypt, there's this series of upgrades. They go from slavery to freedom. And these gardens of Egypt that they've had to work hard to get the water to are first of all upgraded to manna and quail, which is food that just drops out of heaven and sits there waiting for you to collect it which is a kind of an upgrade because you've lost the need for labor, but it's also a little bit limited in its range of flavor. And there's a wonderful bit in the story where they say, this manna and quail, thank you, God, but we're longing for like cucumbers and onions, garlic, yes. Uh, But then there's this further upgrade, the one that Martin spoke to us about last week and the one that comes in Deuteronomy 11. They go into this land of Canaan, they cross the River Jordan, there's another upgrade. It's about God feeding his people. So what actually what Martin, the particular upgrade in this going from glory to glory, the particular upgrade that Martin spoke about last week was one about food and about God's determination to feed his people and to create a space where he would be with them. And uh, the prophet, as we carry on through the story, the prophets increasingly saw that this thing of God feeding us, it's not just about God providing food for our bodies, it's also about God providing food for our souls, that, that he would provide food that led to deeper relationship with him. So jumping ahead to Isaiah 55, verses 1 to 3 says this, the word of the Lord. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money, without cost. Why spend money on what's not bread and your labor on what doesn't satisfy? Listen, listen to me. Eat what is good, and your soul, not just your body, your soul will delight in the richest affair. And then verse 3 is very interesting. Give ear and come to me, hear me, so that your soul may live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you, my faithful love promised to David. See, there it is, linked together. The promise of food to sustain us and God's desire for relationship. He promises to feed us. But the outcome that he's looking for is, if you come, yes, your soul will live, but I will make an everlasting covenant with you. We will enter into friendship. We will enter into lasting friendship. And not only will you be fed well, body and soul, but we'll be together. Amazing. Then the story moves on to Jesus. And then there's this mind-blowing upgrade that takes place where God comes in the person of Jesus and says, now, I'm your food. Wow. Not just will I give you food, I'm your food. Jesus comes and says, I'm the bread of life. I'm the bread of life. We've broken bread and shared wine here. And Simon's read us those words we so often enjoy reading from 1 Corinthians. And Jesus says, at the Last Supper, here's some bread. It's my body broken for you. Eat it. Eat me. Eat me in my brokenness. I'm your sustenance. 
And he takes the cup and he says, drink it. It's my blood. It's poured out for you. Wow. God feeds us. He does it because he desires our friendship. Jesus didn't just give the disciples the bread and the wine so they'd have something kind of, I don't know, memorable or enjoyable, but he was seeking friendship. He knew that whenever God's people took that bread and wine, they'd put the, 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 bread, the rest of the bread back on the plate and the cup back on the tray. And at that moment, they'd know themselves to be closer to God than they were just previously. There's a thing that God's after, closeness to us as his people. And he makes provision through food, makes himself our food. So we continue now as the church, further on in the story, we continue to enjoy relationship with God over food. And there is more and more of this to come. You can keep breaking bread. We can keep breaking bread and drinking wine uh, for all of our lives. And there is a deeper, closer, richer communion with God for us to enjoy as our relationship with him goes from strength to strength and glory to glory, as food makes friends. And then the end of it all, the glorious end of it all, Jesus describes as a wedding banquet. It's like, how could this story get any better? And it does. Because now, with a wedding banquet, it's not just that food makes friends, but food celebrates family being made. When a bride and a groom come together, it's going beyond friendship. They started out as friends, hopefully, and they'll continue as friends, hopefully. But on the wedding day, people who have been friends become family. It's a covenant that's made where two become one. Friends become family. And that is what Jesus describes happening at the end of all history. There'll be a feast, there'll be a banquet, but it's not just a place where friends will come together, it's a place where family will be made. And the amazing truth is, we're the bride. We get to enter into that family relationship with God for all eternity. God feeds us, and he desires our friendship. Actually, he desires eternal relationship with us. And to get right as close as we ever get to the end of the whole Bible. Uh, Revelation 22, it's the last chapter, but I'm just going to read the first few verses, as there's a revelation given to the Apostle John about what what this eternity will be like, and he's given this picture. The angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing down from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. Does that remind you of anything? Back at the start, God plants a garden to feed people, to create a space where he can have friendship. Here's this city, the end of all history. Right in the middle of it, there's trees, and they're bearing crops of fruit continually, making provision for us, God's people. And the leaves of the trees are for the healing of the nations. And no longer will there be any curse. And the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. 
and they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and there will be no more night. Be able to see God's face continually. Even better than the Garden of Eden. So there's a thread. It runs from Genesis through to Revelation, right through the scripture, that God feeds us because he desires our friendship. It's one thread. Here's another thread. God's people eat with strangers seeking new friends. I actually have a few pictures with kids coming up. There's a little cuteness factor coming, just to to warn you. Uh, God's people eat with strangers seeking new friends. Genesis 18, going right back to Abraham. We see in Abraham's life that one day, three strangers were passing by. Three strangers. Abraham looked up, and first of all, he saw them, which is a thing in itself. And having seen them, he begs them, come in, come in, come on. I want to feed you. Can I, can I give you some water? Can I wash your feet? And he goes and he prepares the most extravagant meal for these three people that he's never met before. He is an example of hospitality, of how God's people eat with strangers and make new friends. As it turns out, those three new friends, those three strangers were angels, or actually perhaps even God himself, the text doesn't quite resolve that for us, but they were not just normal visitors. Going on in the story to Israel, we're um, reminded by Moses that God looks after orphans and widows and strangers. And if you go back to Deuteronomy, not to Deuteronomy 11, but the chapter just before, Deuteronomy 10 and verse 17, it says, the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, shows no partiality, accepts no bribes. This great God, he defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow, and he loves the alien, the stranger, giving him food and clothing. That's what God's like. God himself looks looks out for the stranger, gives him food and clothing. Verse 19, and you are to love those who are aliens, those who are strangers. For you yourselves were aliens in Egypt. Yet, as with so much of Israel's life, this high calling, this wonderful vision of a people who would gather in the stranger and give them home, got corrupted. Because the strangers who came in so often corrupted the people of Israel. Um, You could turn to Numbers 25, where some Israelites sat and ate with some Moabites, nearby nation, and ended up in an orgy with them, for example. It's the kind of thing that went on throughout Israel's history, that they were called to welcome strangers and to make friends, but it so often ended badly as those strangers who became friends corrupted them. Uh, Which brings us back to the prophets and their promise of something better and to one of my favorite passages of the scriptures, Zechariah chapter 2. There's a vision. 
given to Zechariah to see something better that would come. And he saw an angel measuring Jerusalem. And then another angel says, run, tell that young man, Jerusalem will be a city without walls because of the great number of men and livestock in it. And God says, I myself will be a wall of fire around it and I will be its glory within. This picture is of a walled city. And Jerusalem was always taken as a representation of God's people. And you built a wall around a city in order to defend it, to keep people out that would cause you trouble. And at this point in Israel's history, they've been in exile. The walls have been destroyed. There's a concern about whether the walls now are adequate to protect them. And so a man goes, let's measure them, let's work it out, let's sort it out. And the angel says, no, you don't need to rely on a wall made of stone. You don't need to build something that will keep people out. You don't have to worry in that way anymore about people coming in and mucking you up. Because God says, I myself will be a wall of fire for you. And I myself will be your glory. And we're going to have another upgrade. We're going to move into something more amazing than you've yet seen. And you will be able to welcome strangers and it will be glorious and it won't do you in. And Jesus comes as the next part of the story. And Jesus was that glory, came from the Father, full of glory. And he drew people in. In Matthew chapter 8 and verse 11, it's recorded for us that Jesus said, many will come from east and west. Many will come. People will come in. And he sees it happening at a meal table. He says, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. And indeed they did come and recline at table with Jesus. We have Pharisees and tax collectors. A whole diversity of people came and sat at table with Jesus, so much so that he was labeled a friend of sinners and a glutton because he was known for having all kinds of meals with all kinds of people all the time. But rather than being corrupted by these people, as Israel had been, Jesus had the opposite effect. Rather than them corrupting him, his presence transformed them. I love the story of Zacchaeus. Jesus entered Jericho, Luke 19, verse 1, and was passing through. And a man was there by the name of Zacchaeus, and he was a chief tax collector. He was wealthy. He wanted to see Jesus, but he was short. So he went up the tree, and Jesus came that way. And when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So Zacchaeus came down at once, welcomed Jesus gladly. The people saw this and began to mutter. He's gone to be the guest of a sinner. There's that mumbling you know, thing going on there. Friend of sinners, glad and were. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord Jesus, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house. Today salvation has come. It came through a meal. Jesus used meals to take hold of strangers and make friends. And even after he had died and been resurrected, he was still at it. 
this time in John chapter 21, we read of him being on the beach cooking a meal. He's got the fish uh, and he's cooking them because there are his disciples there who are still wondering. Look, we, 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 um, we all fled, you know, when Jesus was uh, captured and arrested. And, you know, where's our relationship at? And Jesus cooks some fish and says to Peter, works it through with Peter, our relationship can be restored, you know. It happens as they're eating fish. Little detail we might miss. It's no surprise, given the power of Jesus' own mealtimes, it's no surprise that the early church offered hospitality. It says in Acts chapter 2, one of the first things we know about the early church, they ate with each other. Acts chapter 2, verse 46, they broke bread in their homes and they ate together. We have this word Philadelphia. Philadelphia means loving the brothers. Uh, It's a New Testament word. It's a a Greek word. We find it's loving the brothers. But the New Testament church didn't restrict themselves to Philadelphia. They also did Philozenia. There you go. Philozenia means love of strangers. Like we have the word xenophobe means fear of strangers. The early church did philozenia, which is friendship of strangers. And you know what? That's the word which is translated hospitality. When the New Testament says to us, be hospitable, it says, do this thing. Do philozenia. Love the strangers. The early church did it. Like Jesus, they ate with strangers. And like Abraham, they saw amazing things happen. In Hebrews 13, verse 2, the writer to the Hebrews is able to say, don't forget to uh, be hospitable. That is, love the strangers. Don't forget to love the strangers because by doing it, some people have entertained angels without knowing it. It wasn't just Abraham's experience back then, but in the early church, the same kind of experiences were going on. And of course, the church is still practicing hospitality today. If uh, a Chinese restaurant was key in the existence of our whole church, for me personally, a Sunday lunch was key in why I'm here now. My first Sunday in Oxford, a couple called Jeremy and Joe Bray had me to lunch in their house. And by tea time, I was in. To the ch- I mean, that was it, in. Uh, and many of you have had... If I was to ask... Those of you who are like, oh, yeah, I love this church. For many, many people, it would be that kind of experience that as soon as you got here, you've been welcomed into people's homes. Uh, speaking to uh, friends who has had the privilege of overseeing something like 120 different uh, missional communities in the life of different churches, uh, one of his observations is this, that there's not a single one of them that has ever worked that didn't eat together regularly. Uh, There are some that eat together and still don't work. There are other things that matter, like praying. But not a single one has worked without eating together regularly. This is what we're part of. This is in our DNA, and it's amazing. Philadelphia, loving one another. Philozenia, loving the stranger. So that's two threads. First thread, God feeds us, desiring our friendship. And the second one, 
God's people eat with strangers seeking new friends. So I've got three upgrades to suggest this morning. We can pray for all manner of upgrades, but I've got three to suggest you might like. And if you like the sound of them, you can pray for them and we'll see what God will do. So here's the first upgrade, uh, letting God feed us. I was very encouraged both by what John shared and Suzanne as well. John shared with us about being rooted deep in God, finding sustenance in him, letting him feed us and water us so that we won't be scorched in the difficult times, rooted deep. God wants to feed us. God wants to feed us. Will we let him? And Suzanne's word as well about a baby at peace with the father. I, cho- I, didn't, I chose this image and I think it fits. A sense of restfulness as the father looks after us. You know, in the Bible, we hear of God providing food for the body and food for the soul. We live in a society where mm, very few people have a problem with not having enough food. We have a different problem, don't we? We eat too much of it. So that's not such a, you know, immediate concern for us. But there is a massive danger that we will have well-fed bodies and emaciated souls. Got plenty of nutrients to keep us going physically, but our spirits are starving. Well, God has provided us with this amazing, wonderful menu of food. It's called a Bible, and it's food for our souls. I just want to encourage you, let God feed you. Let God open the pages and see what God will do. Read it and see if you don't feel satisfied as God feeds your soul with truths from his word. It's an upgrade because some people, I'm sure, are going from one week to the next to the next, not taking a meal for the soul or maybe relying on whatever food is provided as we gather on a Sunday. But it's here to eat. We can eat it all the time. And it will never make us fat. <laughs> it just make us stronger in soul and in spirit. So there's, there's one upgrade that we can get hold of. Just, we can let God feed us. Here's another one. Seeing the strangers. There are so many people who feel themselves really, in fact, are on the edge and feeling excluded. And I pray that God would upgrade our sight so that we would see those people that are on the edge, see those people that could be drawn in. Let me say very clearly, we don't want to have a welcome team to welcome people to our church meetings. Uh, We want together to be a welcome team that welcomes people into our lives. That's an upgrade, isn't it? It's great to have a table and leaflets, and I'm thankful for the people that do that week in, week out. And they know, Ruth, you know that. You know I'm not putting that down in any way, but we want an upgrade, don't we? We don't just want to come in the door and go, oh, isn't it nice there's a table? I'm glad someone's there this morning. To be a people who would welcome others into our lives, lift our eyes, see those who are currently strangers to us. Now, some people are blessed with being irrepressible extroverts. Uh, Others of us are not. And for those who are not irrepressible extroverts, this seeing the stranger takes just a little bit more effort, doesn't it? 
it requires a little bit of discipline to look up and see people when, honestly, we're just not really feeling like it. Uh, for me personally, I know that I need a few disciplines. So often on a Sunday, I will go and stand by the door um, as people are, as, you know, people are heading out, just as a way of making sure that I don't always talk to people I know because everybody's passing by and there's a greater chance that I'll talk to someone that I don't know. If we all stood by the door, it'd be a bit awkward. But it might be just not sitting in the same seat week in, week out might help. I don't know what little disciplines, what little changes might work for you. I also find that um, I'm playing football on a, Saturday, sorry, on a Sunday evening, and I'm going not only wanting to in, avoid injury, which is quite a prayer in itself, uh, but I'm wanting to meet people and, and to, to, to make some new friends. I mean, that's what I'm looking to do in playing football with some dads locally in the park just down the end of the road here, I'm finding that I need to take a bit of quiet time on a Sunday afternoon before I go so that when I turn up, I'm not run ragged with having spent the whole time giving out to other people, but I can turn up actually, not just in principle interested in making friends, but actually having some energy to make friends. When I, little things that we can do that will make a difference to being, for those of us who aren't irrepressible extroverts, uh, we can do a, a few little things. But I, I'm asking God for an upgrade. You know, in standing by the door and getting a bit of quiet time when I need it, I feel sometimes like I'm working the treadmills, pumping the water from the Nile to the gardens. But I'm asking God for an upgrade. Do you know what? I want to be more extrovert. I want fewer strangers to remain strangers. I want fewer strangers to remain strangers and for more to become friends. And I'm praying for an upgrade that I would see strangers and actually want to talk to them. Third thing, sharing meals. Look at this. There's a lot of meals in the week. There's three that day and some more. (laughs) There's 21. That's loads, isn't it? That's like loads of meals in a week. Some of you are like, where's second breakfast? (laughs) That could get us up to 28. And supper, that's 35. Anyway... Uh, most of us eat 21 meals a week. Wouldn't it be great just to share one of those meals each week with someone out of the ordinary? We could share more meals with people. And I understand it's not always that easy practically, um, but meals weren't always easy in the New Testament either. For Jesus, Jesus went to some meals and people were like really rude to him. Like really rude. So much so he had to tell them off publicly. You've been really rude. In the early church, meals weren't always that easy. There's a meal described in 1 Corinthians where some people turned up for the church fellowship meal and some people scoffed it all and left nothing for the others. It's not a good experience. feel pretty unloved after that. And then there's all the tension between Jews and Gentiles, which means that sometimes some people would turn up to eat a meal with the church and as they arrived, others would get up and leave. You're here, I'm going. Awkward. It's awkward stuff, isn't it? So it was awkward for that. It was awkward for Jesus. It was awkward for the early church. And yet they set us this wonderful example of loving the stranger and seeing amazing things happen. So I just want to encourage us. Let's recognize the challenges, the awkwardness that there can be in sharing with us. Let's recognize it and let's pray for an upgrade. One particular awkwardness or challenge I'd like to just mention very briefly before I finish is the difference of lifestyle between families and single people. 
which can get in the way. There's a difference of lifestyle for different ones of us in the community. Um, Bev and I always used to eat dinner at about 7.30 until we had children. And now we eat dinner sometime between 5 and 6. And actually, if it gets beyond 6 o'clock and we've not eaten, we start to go slightly crazy. Because it's like, it's too late to eat. We're going to fall apart. It's changes that, that take place. Or... Um, if we go out for a meal, we can't get anywhere to eat with anyone before 8 o'clock because we've got to put the children to bed when a babysitter comes. And we've sometimes been invited for a meal um, by people who've... There's no one present here who's done this to us. I've just, I'm pretty sure about that. Um, who've said, come round for a meal, come at 7. And we said, no, we'll come at 8. We've got to put the children to bed. They say, no, come at 7. We say, no, we can't. And they say, well, 7.30. We're like, No! awkward, isn't it? It's a little bit difficult. Um, the nature of the conversation is different. People who don't have children have civilized conversations at meals. Uh, people who eat with children are trying to remember what civilization looks like <laughs> as they scrape food off their guests' clothing. Uh, there's a danger of a standoff taking place in which families honestly don't feel like they are together enough to be able to invite anyone in. They feel embarrassed. Like, look at all the stuff on the floor. I can't even remember where the hoover is. <laughs> Too embarrassed to invite people in. And single people don't want to intrude. I mean, I, I get that. And obviously, intruding in a household that has children in can be a phenomenally intimidating process. There are a few things more scary to most young men, particularly perhaps, but not just young men than small children. I mean, they are fearsome creatures. Um, until, you, until you have some reason for regular interaction with small children, I mean, it just makes you feel uncomfortable. So these are awkwardnesses that exist within us as a community. We can overcome, we can have an upgrade, can't we? We can get past that. Jesus leads the way. Now, we know because of the fish thing that Jesus could cook. I note that it was a barbecue. (laughs) Still counts. Jesus could cook, but nowhere do we see Jesus saying, tell you what, I'll cook for you all and inviting, you know, like a young family round and providing for them. We don't see that. What we do find is Jesus finds a man up a tree and says, I'm coming to your house for tea. And he said, let the little children come to me, climb all the the stuff, put their food on my beard. Do you know what? Yeah. Even though he could create food for 5,000 without a kitchen, Jesus didn't make a big habit of cooking. He did it for the disciples, but he didn't make a big habit of cooking for people and inviting them in. Rather, more often, he invited himself to other people's houses. He said, I'm coming to your house, and you're going to cook for me. There's a challenge there, isn't there? That's not very British. It's almost like, it's almost like a statement of anti-Britishness to say, I'm coming to your house for tea. But you know what? If you were to invite yourself to tea, uh, with say... We've been talking about this thing about young families. If you were to invite yourself to tea with a young family and offer to entertain the children and help wash up. (laughs) Bex would bite your hand off. 
and there'd be a queue. You see, Ruth as well. So um, now then, were you to do that, you may get a chance to talk about your day and your feelings. <laughs> if no one walks into a door or bites anyone else. <laughs> There's the truth of it. Um, we've sometimes had people come to eat with us as a family, and they, really, they clearly want to talk about something deep and meaningful, but we're struggling to get past forcing broccoli into people. <laughs> and, sometimes that's, and the amazing thing is, the amazing thing is that in doing this, people have sometimes entertained angels. Doing, doing this stuff. People have got to the end of stuffing the broccoli in, Romans used to barbecue broccoli. Can you believe that? That's even worse. Anyway, stuffing the barbecued broccoli into their toddler and then stopped and said, we had an angel visit us. Uh, we can share meals. Sharing meals is not just about our homes. By I've, I've, I've focused on the homes thing, but we can share meals in a workplace as well. Um, who... who normally stops for lunch at work. Okay. Okay. Who could stop for lunch if you really made a decision to do so? There's a, there's a few other people. Um, why not stop for lunch and invite someone else to go with you? Why not spot a colleague walking out of the office to go and buy a sandwich and say, I'm coming with you? Why not? You'd be like Jesus, wouldn't you? Yeah? Yeah? Okay, three upgrades, three possible upgrades. Letting God feed us, seeing strangers, and sharing meals. I want all of those upgrades. I don't know which ones you want, but I've spoken for a long time, and I'm hoping you want at least one of them. <laughs>